Welcome to the Entrepreneur Stories. This is our second episode. I'm currently sitting at Parsify or Future Lab uh, office here together with first entrepreneur at B Post, um, Peter de Wolf. Hi, Peter. Welcome. Well, thanks for having me. Peter, tell us uh, something about yourself. You are the initial founder of Bringer, but I think everyone wants to know where you came from, where you're heading to, and what is Bringer? All right, so um, maybe just a short introduction on myself. I studied as an interpreter, but uh, I went straight into business when I started working. I worked at uh, Belgacom for eight years in uh, several positions but I ended up uh, as a project manager at uh, Belgacom. But in 2007, I moved to B-Post. I've been working there for uh, 11 years now as a corporate project manager. And in the last four years, uh, I've been uh, hardcore into innovation uh, within B-Post. So we had two big innovation projects, which, would you, which you could call disruptive innovation. Although the concepts already existed abroad, they didn't exist in Belgium, and B-Post uh, decided they wanted to be the first mover in the Belgian market. So, um, in that it, sense... It seems like you, you, you ran through a couple of milestones for the company B-Post itself. I mean, 2007, obviously, you have the financial crisis. Um, there was uh, the, the transition going from a government corp um, corporation to... Private one. Yep. Private whole, uh, held one. How did that uh, influence the company in your opinion? How did you see maybe a transformation in, in, in the entire structure? Well, before I came to B-Post, the whole transformation was done from being a government uh, company to a private one. There was a whole reorganization of the operational department. There's been a lot of um, cost savings that have been done, productivity gains, and some professionalization of the company. So when I got there, they were already a long way uh, going in that direction. But then uh, in, the, in the 10 years that I was there, it moved from the whole product-oriented uh, selling to, to service-oriented selling to customer-oriented. Um, we had the introduction of B-Post uh, on the stock exchange, uh, which has been done, which was a big one as well. And then, how was the energy during that time? Uh, I mean, going from uh, government to, to private owned, that must already take like a lot of effort for um, pretty much every employee yeah. at, uh, at the company. Well, it's obviously something that had been prepared or had been in preparation for years and years. You don't just decide to go to, um, to the stock exchange and, uh, and just um, hope that everything will go well. So the whole preparation had been ongoing for years, but obviously the, 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 the IPO itself was a big, a big project and I was part of it as well, uh, for a small part of it in the financial department. But it, uh, it was yet another move in professionalizing the company, in, uh, um, in being more customer oriented, in looking further than just the, the borders of, of Belgium seeing what's going on, the big tendencies in the world, the e-commerce, the parcel business that was emerging. So it just made sure that B-Post acted more like, like a private company who is supposed to look forward, who is supposed to, 
to make sure it identifies the threats and looks at the opportunities of, uh, of the world around. Exactly. And that's, that's where you came in with the radical new, <laughs> new solution being Bringer. Exactly. So one of those tendencies that BPost identified was the emerging importance of peer-to-peer -peer, uh, markets. So it's, it was not a new concept. Even the peer-to-peer -peer, um, delivery market was already tested abroad. We had uh, Uber who was uh, doing some uh, testing in San Francisco. There was Stewart in France. There were several examples of companies and startups moving in that market. And Bpost decided that they didn't want to just wait for some company to come over to Belgium and take market share, but they wanted to be the first mover and take action themselves in, uh, in that new emerging market. I see, I see. Because indeed, I mean, at this point, we have Uber in Belgium. Uber Eats uh, is taking a stronghold, as well as Deliveroo. And to what extent do you feel these companies are also aiming for the, the parcel delivery market at this point? Well, they are, but as we also saw with Bringer, it's, it is more of um, it complements the traditional parcel delivery market. And I don't think it's likely to replace it very soon because we, with Bringer, we identified uh, and, and we learned that it was mostly used by uh, small, uh, small businesses. It was used for express delivery. It was used by people who didn't have the appropriate means of transportation. But it's not something, price-wise, it can't replace the advantages of a huge, dense delivery network as Bpost traditionally has. You do have a lot of market experience, uh, network to leverage in, in this story. Yeah? But um, looking at Bringer itself, if you had to pitch it in one sentence or uh, your unique self selling proposition of Bringer, what, what would it be so that everyone understands what Bringer is, of course? Well, Bringer allows everybody to send whatever they want to wherever they want. And on the other side, anyone can actually make some extra money by using their existing means of transportation for the service of Bringer. So it's picking in on extreme convenience, of course, which is a crucial one, but then also in terms of people who have flexible hours, flexible job uh, opportunities, who can then help uh, carry their, yep. uh, their, their efforts uh, in delivering these parcels. Yeah, so we, there's actually the, 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 the flexibility for the drivers who can just decide at any moment if they want to do a job or not. So they're, uh, they're absolutely free to choose when or which job they want to do. They also saw how much money they were going to make with a the job. They could check if, the, jo if the, the transport job was on their route that they were going to, to do anyway, if they were by car or by bike. And on the other side, the, the senders, the ones uh, paying for the service, they had the extreme convenience of choosing the time and uh, exact time and place of pickup and delivery, which is something that is not possible today or not, uh, let's say, with a, for a reasonable price. And it could be delivered at the same day. So it was a kind of a cheap express service, more expensive than a classic parcel, but we saw that it doesn't replace the classic parcel business anyway. So it's a complementary uh, 
type of business uh, for exactly. people. Exactly, more inner city related, uh, let's say. Yeah, well, we did see that the average uh, stretch that was driven or by, by, by the drivers by car was, was over 20 kilometers. So it was generally used for, let's say, uh, areas more, the, more the, the big areas. suburban areas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although we also had transports of, of like 150 kilometers, people who were transporting their bikes to the sea for their weekend, and then they just took the train themselves. Yeah, this surpasses the parcel size. Uh, let's that's, say <laughs> that's something you can't uh, you can't do um, with any classic uh, courier of service. Course. And then looking at the process, because I think this would be. The, the major milestone that the BPOS took and, and was also uh, majorly thanks to you, um, the setup of uh, this, this corporate venture in the end. And what, what, was, what was the beginning? What was the trigger? And I mean, the trigger was, of course, uh, the peer-to-peer uh, market uh, opportunities and the, the trends that were occurring uh, abroad. But how did you get started at this point? Well, uh, what happened is that before Bringer, we did another big innovation, which was city logistics. And uh, well, we were three people doing city logistics. And when it ended, it was like the perfect timing with the whole peer-to-peer thing that, that arose. So we kind of uh, flawlessly moved into the next uh, innovation. We had the, the experience of the first one. We knew we had some people with the right skills to do the startup go from zero to one. So we had uh, the opportunity to just uh, right, st- move straight into, uh, into Bringer. Um, so it's because it's always difficult to find the right people to do, um, to do such projects, you need the right skills. And I think uh, we had... Um, that is also a very interesting question. Yeah. Because also our previous uh, entrepreneur, Stan van Havermaat from Orgelux, had that exact same question actually aimed at you. So, indeed, what, what is the, the, the best structure in, in, in identifying, firstly, um, the, the, the right uh, types of people? Eh? So, if you had to describe them on a whiteboard, you mentioned three people. Eh? Who are those people? What, what, what are the assets that they, uh, that they need to have? And um, what do you use within your company to, to, to find these people? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. But for me, it's quite clear. I think you need, well, we had three people, and you may have four, depending on the kind of startup you do. If it's more technology-based, you obviously need somebody with good IT uh, skills who, is, um, uh, who knows what's going on, who who's, uh, uh, gets along with the new trends. So you need, uh, in that case, for Bringer, for example, a really strong IT-skilled person. And then for me, the other ones are you always need somebody who is more operational, process, uh, organization uh, oriented, and you need somebody who knows who is uh, who knows how to do um, uh, competition analysis, market analysis, who knows how to market uh, and sell stuff, uh, who knows about uh, pricing. So that's like one kind of let's say marketing. Yeah, sales yeah, yeah. skill. Marketing guru. You have a, a, an, an IT guru. You have the guy who gets things done practically. The operations. The guru. operations <laughs> guy. And then there's always also the person who like keeps the overview, who has a strong uh, 
uh, strategic skills, who um, who's a kind of the, the 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 one who keeps the overview of everything, who has uh, well analytical skills and uh, and strategic skills. But I think it's important that each one of those profiles is not really too nerdy wise into its his own domain. But you need to have an open mind and need to know about the other ones too, because the job description is not very aligned when you're in a startup. So you have to be able to I work. I guess you're, you're aiming at a, a jack of all trades. Somebody yeah. who has uh, eaten, or the Dutch expression is uh, eaten a bit of cheese <laughs> all around. Yeah. Um, so as somebody who, who, who has a broad spectrum of, of what is going on within, uh, let's say, a vertical. Um, and which, which person were you in that story, if I may ask? I'm always uh, more of the, the, the guy who gets things done. <laughs> <laughs> that explains your uh, CEO position at this point at the Bubble Post. Yes, uh, probably. <laughs> so um, I'm always uh, historically and also uh, character-wise, I'm, I'm good at uh, structuring, bringing structure to chaos, uh, getting things moving, get things done, um, uh, doing process management, uh, managing operations and stuff like that. So that was uh, my role in, uh, in both innovations. Uh, but it's always interesting to, to talk about and to discuss with the other ones about all the different topics because in the end, you're one team and you're supposed to move on together with the product or the service you're developing. Exactly. And so in, in, in that phase, uh, you, were, you were one of the, 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 the co-founders uh, together with uh, the two other uh, people there. Um, but now you changed to actually a different uh, corporate venture in this, uh, at this point. What's, what happened there? What's, what's the transition? Was there some rotation in, in people within the team of uh, Bringer? Well, what's happened is, and it, it's also part of what happened with City Logistics, one of our tasks was to do market analysis, to look at companies who are active in the same kind of business that you are, and that could potentially help you to grow faster, or where you have uh, overlapping uh, activities or, or, uh, or market proposition. And that's what we did with City Logistics, which resulted in the, in, uh, uh, the takeover of City Depot. And the same uh, was there for Bringer, which resulted in the takeover of uh, Parsify by Bpost. And in both cases, we integrated the activities of, of both companies. Uh, we both had our specialties, but, but we had a lot of common ground. And bundling the two together, make sure you have a more complete offer towards the customer, whilst uh, being more efficient in the, in the parts that you have in common. Exactly. So that's what we did for, uh, for in both cases. Okay, okay. So, and indeed, Parsify and Bringer merged. Uh, in the end, it became Parsify. The, the, beautiful office in, in which we are at this point but and during that process it must have been also difficult to some extent to 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 kind of pinpoint the the success factors um i mean speaking from experience at bundle i know that you always set out a couple of kpis objective kpis mm -hmm. um to to measure your success but in the end they keep changing, they, they keep uh, adapting, and in the end, mm -hmm. 
you also come up with with uh, a couple of subjective um, success measurements. All right. How did how can you relate to this in in terms of uh, bringer? Well, it's it's always a bit um, out of the comfort zone of corporate uh, management to not have clear KPIs and objectives when working uh, in innovation. So we did set some uh, quantitative KPIs because managers like that. And it gives you something to hold on to. It's uh, good security. <laughs> <laughs> But um, I think uh, apart from that, um, you have a lot of qualitative KPIs. And I, I always think it's important to measure the way you handled the startup and the evolution of the startup. So you could also try to uh, translate that into quantitative KPIs, but it's more about how fast did you do experiments? How often did you, did you iterate? Why did you iterate? Uh, did you interpret the results of your experiments in a, in a correct way in order to eliminate certain options or, or alternatives? Why did you decide to go on in a certain way? Did you read the signals right? How did you use your budget? Did you spend it on stuff that actually learned you something and gave you some new uh, insights? So that's, you could fail in the end with a startup, but you could have managed the startup in a really good way while still failing in the end. So I think in the end, it's not a failure. If you managed the startup well and you decided to stop it, it would still be a good decision, even if in the end there's not a product or a service. But that's very discomforting for, for higher management. So you need people who are quite open-minded to, let's say, unassigned budgets or uh, not having any forecasts or not even knowing exactly what the product or the service is going to look like. And it's, uh, it's a bit scary to, to, to put in money on that <laughs> without knowing what's going to happen in the end. I can imagine that uh, even though it's a corporate venture and you got a lot of freedom in, in, in operating, there were still some, some, some steering moments. I mean, you did have a steer co, um, if that's an assumption that I can make. We did have, um, let's say, it was more like a sounding board or a steer co, you can call it whatever you want, but we, you need people high up in the hierarchy Uh, who are willing to guide you, to challenge you, to give you advice, but don't um, force any directions on you. And that was what we had, luckily. So we have some people like that uh, in, uh, in the direction committee of B-Post. For Bringard, we had um, our CEO of Parcels and Logistics, uh, Kurt Pirloot, and president of Europe, Parcels, uh, Luc Klut. And they were the people who guided us and we didn't show up with fancy PowerPoint presentations or, or really clear results. We just showed everything we learned, where we were at, and they guided us and gave us advice uh, throughout, um, throughout the whole process. And another one that is, so, so it, it helps you to stay out of corporate politics. It helps you to stay out of the the corporate uh, project validation committees and whatever they are. Um, and and um, you have the people right there who can give you the funds to go on or to stop. Um, and I think those funds also need to stay out of, 
let's say the corporate wallet. So, um, so you have you you're able to stay out as much as as you can out of uh, the corporate politics. Yeah, I think that's that's also one of our core beliefs at Bundles, saying that okay, we 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 don't want to get entangled in the web that is a, a corporate structure, or at least uh, get stuck in the legacy that uh, right. uh, of the processes there. But uh, during that process, I mean, you you even when not being a strategy designer, you always have a couple of phases. And let's say you, you create your value proposition. Uh, prior to that, you do your market research. Um, you, you make an alpha, you test it, uh, you create your valuable, um, fundable business case. And then that's where you started actually building. Was, was this also somewhat the pattern that you can find? And, and to what extent was the, the, the corporation transparent in... in in fundings that were available, and was there also, uh, let's say, a, a floodgate system? No, it was not really structured, especially when we started with City Logistics. There was just no prior experience in that uh, uh, on those topics. So what we do, and what I also started before being an innovation, was using vision canvases. So the classic one pager showing. Uh, uh, the customer problem, the, the customer segments, you have the, the solution design, the value proposition. So the classic uh, elements that you kind of fill in with all the assumptions you have. And then the whole process just goes from there and you start testing those different uh, hypotheses in the most efficient way, let's say time and uh, budget uh, related. And then you just try to do some, some experience experiments every week, couple of weeks, and you go from there. And at some point, you need some money to actually build um, your first design or your first uh, prototype. prototype yeah. um, but the whole, the whole argument there is if you spend some money building your prototype, it will allow you to actually test it and then decide if you want to go on building a real product or not and how that real product should look like based on the experience you have with the prototype. So it may actually save you a lot of money in the long run by just spending some uh, in the early stages of, uh, of the whole startup. Of course, but you need to be enough uh, convincing enough or at least have a game plan ready right. to a certain extent to uh, already... But that's why we use also uh, like the outcome hypothesis. Eh? So if you define the learnings you want to do with an experiment, you also define what you would consider a success at the end of that experiment. If you would say that, I don't know, seven people out of 10 can um, associate themselves with a problem setting you're doing, and there's only three, well, you invalidate your assumption and that may mean that you will not continue with that alternative of, of, of your solution. But if seven people actually do or more, well, you have some objective results to show that you're in the right direction. There is and potential. There's yeah. potential, and that's the kind of outcome that should be enough in a startup to get some additional funding for next experiments or for prototype building. And then, I mean, you had this wonderful trajectory. Um, looking in hindsight, uh, let's say, what, what would you say are your key learnings at this point? Like, if you could turn back time, what would you do differently? Um, 
that's always a difficult one. Although we brainstormed about that as well. So we, I think um, what is really important and that you probably never do enough is be very critical towards your own product or service because you want to believe that people want it and that people need it. So you cannot try to justify results. You really have to be critical to what, to what you're learning by doing your experiments and be able to say, well, this is not going to work, even though I would like it and it's my little baby. Maybe it's not <laughs> what people are waiting for. How do you go about that? Like uh, not getting your nose too close uh, to, to the book? Uh... Well, I think uh, one of the smart things to do is to, to talk about people who are not really as involved as you are. So I think one of the, the, the smart things to do is get smart allies. <laughs> Surround have, yourself with smart people. Have expert advice, uh, talk to a lot of people, and just remind yourself that you're not supposed to be goal-seeking when you're in a startup, because that will get you failed uh, in the end anyway. So I think that's one, one thing. And another one probably is that you can always do more with less. So if you have a budget, you're likely to spend your budget. So if you ask yourself the question, what if I had like only a, th a tenth of my budget, would I have been able to get the same results? And what would I have done differently? And you can always come up with some more bright ideas of how things could have gone faster uh, or cheaper. But it's uh, always difficult and it's always easy afterwards to to make those reflections. I guess with your operational background as COO, these things uh, tend to come up uh, yeah. with you a lot of times. <laughs> exactly. So, um, well, it's a, it's, a whole, it's a whole different job. Eh? If you're in a, a job in, in operations, as I'm doing now, or if you're in a job uh, doing operations, but in a startup, you're in a whole different mental state. So um, it's fun to do both or to have some, uh, uh, some variety in what you're doing. But um, well, I guess it's not for everybody. It's, it's not suited for everybody to live in um, a very unsure environment as a startup, for example. Because, um, well, we, we actually, as entrepreneurs, we gave up our jobs to start this adventure, which could have led to a failure or to, uh, to stopping the startup maybe even after one or two months. If the preliminary results were negative, it could have been the end of the startup and whilst giving up, the, well, yeah. while not going back to the previous job because you gave up your previous okay. job. Okay, so, so there's, there's a risk involved. There's a risk involved, so you need to, to have a leap of faith. You need to jump and, uh, and see how it goes from there. So um, even as an entrepreneur, there's always uh, some risk involved. It's not your own money yeah. you're spending, of but course. still... Uh, it's not really um, well. There's still some uh, quite some involvement there from uh, from a personal point of view. That's indeed uh, a, a risky yet uh, good good undertaking. Uh, let's say to that point. Is there anything you would like to say to to maybe future entrepreneurs or uh, entrepreneurs that are currently aspiring to to go outside the company walls as well with their projects? Um, maybe some hints that uh, you'd like to give to them? For entrepreneurs? Okay. Or even entrepreneurs, yeah, I mean. Uh... 
Well, I do have to say that I don't uh, consider myself as an, as an expert because I think every project or startup is different and you never know what it's going to, uh, to end up like. But I think you have to believe in what you're doing, um, especially if you're an entrepreneur and you're taking a lot more personal risks than if you're an intrapreneur. But if you're an intrapreneur like, like, uh, like myself, um, I think uh, yeah, you need some, some good, skilled people working with you and preferably people that you get along with well because <laughs> it's important to have a good atmosphere uh, yeah. in a small team and to, to all feel like you're working together for the same goal. And uh, as I've said before, you need to be critical towards what you're doing. And uh, yeah, think back and uh, reconsider and just, well, try to get also some, some structure in the chaos. And that's why we use those methodologies like, um, like in the Lean Startup, the vision canvases, experiment reports. So you, you always need to not just work from the, from the stomach, from the belly, but also have some, some structure in, uh, in the way you're approaching the startup, although it's quite a chaotic uh, environment to work in. All right. I think uh, that's a good way to, to uh, inspire some, some youngsters out there or even more uh, experienced uh, entrepreneurs. Lastly, I'm going to ask you the same thing I asked Stan um, at the end of his interview. Do you have a pressing question that we can ask our next entrepreneur. In fact, his name is Christopher Waldner. He's not an actual entrepreneur, but more an entrepreneur in residence. So a freelance entrepreneur, uh, as you will. So do you maybe have uh, any questions that you would like to ask him as well? Well, probably uh, because we have been uh, fortunate to have good people working on the uh, on the innovation projects within Bepo, so we didn't have the real struggle to find people or to see if they, they were available uh, or have some kind of incentive program for people joining innovative uh, projects in a, in a company. So I would be very interested in seeing how other companies deal with attracting people into a bit more risky uh, entrepreneurial uh, adventures and how they convince them to uh, to take that chance. So that's something uh, I'm quite interested in. All right. Well, there you heard it. Thank you very much, Peter, for uh, your time. All right. You're very welcome. And um, I suggest we go for another beer. Okay, we'll do that. <laughs> Thank you very much for uh, being here with us. And um, we look forward to our next uh, interview, which will be with Christopher Waldner. We'll be launching new episodes every two weeks on Monday from now. So check out our YouTube channel, hit the subscribe button, hit the notification bell, put it in your agenda, check out Entrepreneur Stories on your favorite podcast platform, and make sure to leave your questions for the entrepreneurs in the comment section below. We're looking forward to answering them and looking forward to seeing you again. Take care.